0: wonderful good morning everyone how are we all it's good to see you welcome to everybody online as well it's great to have you with us as we continue our sermon series in the book of acts today uh, i want to introduce you this week and next week to two of the most important and influential people in the whole of the new testament and i want you or i want to help you to understand how their story shapes yours in fact these two people are not just the most important and influential in the New Testament, but they are actually two people who have radically reshaped the trajectory of human history. And here's the crazy thing about these two people. You are probably not very familiar with them. And I think that's kind of of the beauty of Jesus Christ. That I think so often the very people that Jesus Christ uses to change the world, are the very people that the world so quickly forgets. And if you're sitting in here today, and if you're feeling a little bit lonely, a little bit forgotten, if you're feeling like perhaps nobody sees your true value, if you're struggling today with feeling just a little bit outside of community, if you're feeling segregated or alone, If you're feeling like you don't have much to contribute at all to what God might be doing in Hong Kong or might be doing here at the Vine or in your sphere of influence, then the next two weeks are about you. I want to say this right up front, that in this room, the potential that there is for the power of the Holy Spirit to be ministering around our city in this time and in this hour is unfathomable what sits inside of you, waiting to be released, is nothing short of the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And I wanna pray for you that as we open up the story of these two relatively unfamiliar people, these two people that history has forgotten and does not talk much about, you will find a fire being lit inside of you to say, you know what, I can make a difference. You know what? Because of what is inside of me, I can change the world. I wonder whether you pray with me. Father, I just want to thank you for every person in this room and online in this moment. I want to thank you, Lord, for the potential that sits in us, not because of our great strength. Lord, I want to thank you that the potential that sits inside of each one of us is the Spirit of God that has chosen us, set us apart, equipped us, and releases us. And Father, I want to pray that as we look at these two individuals over this week and next, Lord, something would stir inside of this church, Lord, and you would shift us, move us forward, bring us to our knees. Lord, we pray we would be changed. And we thank you so much for that by your spirit alone. In Jesus' name, everyone says. To introduce you to the first of these incredible people, I need to take you to perhaps the most famous passage in the whole book of Acts. The moment where the Apostle Paul has his dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus. Now, this story is one in which you could do a whole sermon series around. And as I was preparing for this, there's so much I I wanted to say in this story. But um, I'm actually cutting out a lot of what can be said in this story. Because I really want to focus in on just the one critical thing that we see here that I think has the most impact on you as a Christian in this moment. And then I'm going to do a teaching with us today, but I'm also going to do a bit of a shorter teaching because I want to connect us actually to a practical way, and we're going to do a practical exercise together before you leave today, where you will be actually trying out that very critical thing that Christ has placed in you. You're all looking really scared right now. It's all right. It's going to be good. Now, I want to jump straight into this. This is Acts 9, starting in verse 1. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might be able to take them as prisoners To jerusalem let me stop there saul is the same as paul okay it's the same person Uh, saul is the the name that was used that he used for himself uh, uh, before he came into christ jesus it's the name that was his hebrew name saul when he came into christ jesus because his gifting was to go to the gentiles he he used his greek version of the name which is paul but saul and paul same thing i'm going to call him paul for the rest of the message now we are introduced paul this is not the first time we're introduced to paul We're introduced to Paul uh, just a few chapters earlier in Acts, chapters 7 and 8. And we're introduced to Paul as a Pharisee. Paul is a passionate, fiery, young Pharisee. And as a Pharisee, he's committed to the law of God. He's committed to making sure that the Jewish people lived in honor of the law. The Pharisees believe that one of the reasons why Israel went into exile in the Old Testament is because they disregarded the law. So when they came back from exile, Ezra took the scrolls and read out the scrolls to the people. And that was the birth point of the Pharisees. They believed from that point onwards that what was most important to make sure that you didn't come under the wrath of God was to understand the law as best you could and to teach that law. And so here's Paul, zealous for the law. And he's so zealous for the law that anybody that he and his sect of Judaism deemed was outside of the law, deemed were heretics, he was going to do everything he could to persecute those people. And when we meet Paul, we meet him at the trial of Stephen, a believer in Jesus. And Paul is watching this trial, hoping that Stephen is found a heretic so that Stephen can be stoned to death. Well, Stephen is declared a heretic. And then Saul comes, or Paul, comes and stands and watches Stephen get stoned. Not only that, but he was the only Pharisee in the presence of that murderous moment. And what the people would do before they'd pick up a stone and throw it to kill Stephen, they had to take off their cloaks and lay them at the foot of a Pharisee. And because Paul was the one Pharisee there at that time, they laid their cloaks at Paul's feet as a symbol to say, we're killing this man on your authority, on the authority of the high priest and the authorities of the Pharisees. You have declared this man a heretic. We're picking up stones and killing him on your authority. And Paul stood there and said, grab your rocks. See, the Pharisees were super upset that there was a group of people who were beginning to believe that a carpenter from Nazareth was actually the Messiah. I mean imagine believing that, what a ridiculous thing to believe. The problem was a lot of people were beginning to believe this. By the time of the stoning of Stephen it was likely that over 5000 people in Jerusalem believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And Saul and his buddies from the Pharisee sect they they knew that this was a problem. Because they, they believed two things about Jesus. Number one, he was a false prophet. There's no way that Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, who did the things that he did, could ever be the Messiah. He's a false prophet. The second thing they believe is this, he's dead. He didn't raise from the dead. What are you chatting about? What's, what's resurrection all about? Read the Old Testament scriptures. They don't mention resurrection. What are you talking about? He is a false prophet and he's dead. And because of this, he goes to the high priest and he says, give me letters of authority. I'm on my way to Damascus. And that's an important city in the Greek Roman Empire. If I find anyone there, if this virus has spread from Jerusalem to Damascus, give me the authority to arrest these people. Bring them back to Jerusalem. Let's put them on trial and let's stone some more Christians. Here's the crazy thing. Scholars tell us that Paul was 20 years old at this time, radicalized by a sect of religion at 20 years old, and this 20-year-old is about to experiencing something that he's never experienced before. Let's read on, verse three. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, "Saul, Saul." I've said this before at the Vine, I'm going to keep saying it. If the Lord ever says your name twice, watch out. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. I love the way that Luke describes this moment for us. Luke is writing Acts, right? And he describes this moment. He uses specific language in the Greek that was very important to link this moment right back to the opening of the Bible in Genesis. Uh, The Greek version of the Bible that Luke and many others would have read had the same words in Genesis 1 as he uses now in this moment. A light that flashes from heaven and the ground that Paul falls upon. The ground uh, being like that Adama, the ground from which God created humanity. That light that came and broke into the darkness just like in Genesis 1. Luke is trying to connect the reader back to that moment because here's What Luke is saying. Guess what? Watch out! This is amazing. God's about to do a new creation. There's there's about to be a moment of new creation. I can almost sense that Luke has a has a big bucket of popcorn. Is like this is amazing. Can't you see what's happening here? Paul, many years later, would write to the church and he would say, if anybody is in Christ Jesus, you've become a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Oh, he experiences it in this moment. This is his new creation. Jesus says this to him, So, soul, why do you persecute me? I love that. He doesn't say, "So, soul, why do you persecute my people? He doesn't say, why do you persecute my church? He says, why why are you persecuting me? Because Jesus is establishing something for the early church to understand as Luke writes this to the church. He's establishing something. He's saying, if you mess with my people, you mess with me. If you're coming against my people, guess what? You're not just coming against my people. You're actually coming against me. Many years later, Paul would say, we're the body of Christ. And, And here in this moment, Jesus is saying, you hurt my body. You hurt me. I feel it. I'm not just aware of it, I feel it myself. Jesus identifies with His suffering people, His hurting children. That's what He does. He identifies with you. And that's great news if you're in this room right now and you're feeling tired or hurt or worn down or oppressed. If you're in this room right now and you're lonely, if you're in this room and you feel like nobody understands you, if you're in this room or watching online right now and and you're going through a time of mourning or grief and you're wondering if anybody connects at all with you, God doesn't just see where you are. If you're a Christian in this room or online right now, He feels you. And he so personally connects himself to you that when something happens to you, it's as if it's happening to him. And it's like he's coming to pull. and he's saying, back off, because if you touch my people, you're touching me, and I'm gonna show up, bolt of lightning, and put you on the ground, buddy. Why are you persecuting me? That should be encouraging to some of you today. There's a God who's not just aware of your predicament, but is fighting battles on your behalf. Because he loves you and he identifies so personally with you that when you hurt, he hurts. Paul's response is awesome. Who are you, Lord? (laughs) The irony of this is so beautiful. If there was one person in all of Israel, one person who should have known who the Messiah was, there's one person who had studied the Old Testament prophetic words about the Messiah more than anyone else. If there is one person who has dedicated his life to protecting the coming of the Messiah. If there's one person who wants to make sure that Israel is the best prepared for the reality of the coming of the Messiah. If there's one person who knows who the Messiah is, it is Paul. And when the Messiah shows up, he has no idea. Who are you, Lord? I have no idea who you are. And this teaches the church, us today, something so important. You can know about Jesus, but never have met him. You can know something of Him. You can know an idea of Him. You can even study Him. You can even come to church on a regular basis and hear somebody teach you about Jesus. You can even open the Bible and you can read about Jesus. But there's a difference between a knowledge of Jesus and an encounter with Him. And Paul had somehow got himself so lost in the study and in the thinking that he had completely missed the reality of the person when he actually showed up. Who are you, Lord? Years later, Paul would be in Athens and he would sit with the philosophers in Athens and he would say, I've walked around your city. There's even an inscription there that says to an unknown God. Here's the great travesty of the global church right now, that we are in danger of worshiping an unknown god I think sometimes the churches can get filled with people who are excited about singing songs and studying and hearing and learning but have stopped short from actually meeting I want to invite you not to just know about Jesus but to encounter him to make it a regular experience of yours To have a friendship with Jesus. To know his presence in your life. And I tell you what, there's nothing wrong with study. I studied the heck out of this passage to preach to you today. I spent hours looking at it in the Greek. I spent hours looking at it in the commentaries. I understand this passage as best I can. But if you leave here today going, oh, I learned something today, my heart will be broken. I hope you leave today going, I met Jesus. There's that moment, isn't there, in Luke 24, when those two disciples have just experienced Jesus, and Jesus has just talked to them about the scriptures, and afterwards, they don't go, wow, didn't we just learn something? Afterwards, they said, were our hearts not burning inside of us as we encountered the risen Lord? My prayer is that your heart would burn inside of you. Who are you, Lord? He cries out. Well, he's about to find out. Look what happens next. Verse 7, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could not see anything. He saw nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Notice what happens here in this moment of incredible change for Paul. he, He suddenly is then lifted up by the companions that were walking with him, and he opens his eyes, but he sees nothing. And it's actually described by Luke here that he is this way, he's blind, although his eyes are open, he's blind for three days. Now, whenever you read three days in the New Testament, your heart should stop immediately and it should trigger something for you. This is Saul, Paul's tomb moment. This is Paul in a moment of his death and his resurrection. For three days, his eyes were opened And he was blind. And Luke is trying to communicate something. He's trying to say this. This is what our spiritual condition is like before we meet Jesus. Before we meet Jesus, here's what life is like. Our eyes are open, but we are actually not seeing the world as it truly should be seen. We're actually not seeing the value in humanity that we really should see. We're actually not seeing what society could become. We're actually not seeing love in the way that we should see it. We're actually not encountering people in the way that we should encounter them. It's only through the lens of Jesus Christ, through his salvation and our restoration in him, that we come to see the world as it truly was created to be seen. Before then, we are opened in our eyes, but we perceive nothing. And Luke is trying to say this is the condition that Paul was in, not just for three days, but this is his spiritual blindness that he's been in for years. His own passion and his study and his radicalization had closed his spiritual eyes to the reality of who the Messiah is. And so the Messiah has to show up, flash around him, bring him to his knees, rise him up and cause him to be blind for him to realize that he had gotten it all wrong. Now, I want you to put yourself in the sandals of Paul right now. He's in some random house in Damascus, blind. And he feels terrible. Imagine a Pharisee. The one thing a Pharisee wants in life is to protect his people for the arrival of the Messiah. The one thing a Pharisee wants more than anything is to usher in the Messiah and to prepare his people for the Messiah. And and Paul realizes he's just dedicated the early years of his life. He's just actually seen the stoning of Stephen and he's done it all to the ones who are actually the real people of the Messiah. That him and his Pharisaical buddies had gotten it all wrong. That actually Jesus was the Son of God. He's suddenly realizing that what they thought was a false prophet is actually really the Son of God. He's suddenly realizing that who he thought was dead is actually well and truly alive because he's just spoken to him and he's just encountered them. And more than that, he's realizing that he has murdered the Messiah's people. And if you're a Pharisee, and you come into the realization that you've actually murdered the very people of the very Son of God, that is the worst thing that could ever happen to you. And it says here that he refused to eat and drink for three days. Now, when you fast, you just refuse food. But if you don't drink, you die. So what Luke is trying to tell us here is Paul wants to die. It's over for him. It's done. How could I ever live knowing that I persecuted not just the Son of God, but His people as well, and He refused to eat or drink, and He was ready to die. Here's Paul going, How could God ever forgive me? And how could the Messiah's real people ever embrace me? Well, enter into the story. The one person who changes history. Let's have a read. Is everybody okay? In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. I love how Luke does this. He's just done this incredible story up to this point and then very quietly he says in Damascus there was a disciple called Ananias. I love this because what Luke is telling you is he's saying this one was the very person that Paul had come to Damascus to arrest. He, he, he had gone to Damascus with authority of the high priest to arrest anybody there who believed in Jesus. And this is one who believed in Jesus in Damascus. This is one. In fact, Paul would write about him later or speak about him later in Acts chapter two. And he would say he was a passionate follower of Jesus and had the respect of all the Jewish people in Damascus. So Ananias was quite well known in Damascus. Ananias would have been a prime target for the murderous Paul, this was the person he went there with these letters to arrest and drag back to Jerusalem and put on trial and hopefully see stone. And this is such a beautiful irony in this story. Note this, the very one who was supposed to become a prisoner is about to be the very one who's going to set the actual prisoner free. Come on, church. The one who should have been locked up under Paul's old regime is about to be the very one that's actually going to set Paul free because it's Paul who is in prison. It's Paul who's in, in, in the chains and behind the bars of his sin and his pride and his selfish ambition that has blinded him to the reality of the Messiah around him. And it's Ananias who is free. It's Ananias who has all the freedom, who has come into relationship with Jesus, who knows who he is, who has that intimate relational connection to him, who knows that his own sins have been forgiven. And Ananias has this understanding because he's like, I was a sinner. I, I was an enemy of God. But, but God in Jesus through his death and resurrection has now set me free. And I am free not just to receive salvation, but I am free now to be a minister of that salvation to anyone that God allows me to be around. I am so grateful that I am not prisoned to my sin and death anymore. And the one who is in prison wants to kill himself. And God so loves the world that he sends not just his only son, but the children of the son. Look what happens next. The Lord called to him and said this in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. Luke very beautifully does this. He does exactly the same words that were used for Paul's moment on the Damascus Road. Paul had a vision of the Lord. Paul heard the Lord's voice. But Paul's response was, who are you, Lord? Ananias has a vision. Ananias hears the Lord's voice. His response? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, what's up? I'm here. I mean, Ananias had no idea what God was about to ask him to do, okay? And I think if he did know that, he might have not said yes in that particular moment. But he's blind to that right now. He's a little bit not aware. But God shows up and says, Ananias. Remember, he only says his name once. Praise God. <laughs> Ananias. And Ananias' responds, yes, Lord. I'm ready. It's another day. I can't wait. What do you want me to do today? All right. You want to know what you're going to do today? <laughs> the Lord said to him this. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man there from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. <laughs> he's not praying. He's dying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, let's just pause there for a moment, Lord, Ananias says. Lord, we need to chat about this a little bit. I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. (laughs) I was so glad he was in Jerusalem. But now he's come here. And that's not great because he's got authority from the high priest and the chief priest. And he's going to arrest all of us that call on your name. So I just want to get this clear, Lord. You're talking about a different soul from the one I'm thinking, right? There's lots of souls, aren't there, Lord? This is a common Hebrew name right now. Like, this is not that guy, right? Right? It's amazing, isn't it, how how God's ability for grace always far exceeds ours. It's so easy, isn't it, for us to wonder, ah, that person. (sighs) Never that one. Oh, really? Have you seen what they've said and done? And understandably, Ananias is here going like, man, really? Like, that one? And I love what we see here in Ananias. We see somebody who's not afraid to question God. <laughs> not afraid to go, let's just pause for a little bit here before I rush into the, my own death. Can we talk about this for a moment? Am I hearing you right? Like that one? Is this, is this really what's on your heart? But the Lord said to Ananias, go. <laughs> for this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And Ananias is wrestling with God in this moment, saying, okay, I think I know what you need me to do, but seriously, this one could kill me. He's come here to do that. I'm not sure if I really can go. And God says, no, you need to go. And guess what? This one is my chosen instrument. And I think Ananias is wrestling with this because he's like, do I really need to go? And Jesus says to him, I want you to go and place your hands on him and pray, him, pray for him so his sight is restored. I want you to place your hands upon this man, minister to him so his sight will be restored. And here's Ananias going, is there any other way? Now think about it. There was another way. You see, Jesus didn't have to do it this way. Jesus showed up to Paul and did this amazing thing, light from heaven, fall on the ground, raise him back up. What Jesus could have done in that moment is immediately restored his sight, forgiven him of his sins, filled him with the Holy Spirit, and set him off to be the conqueror of the Greek Roman Empire. That's what he could have done. It was within Jesus' power, but Jesus did not decide to do it that way. Instead, he blinds Paul, puts him in a place of abject terror for three days, raises up another person to go along to pray for him. And the question we should be asking is, why does God do it that way? it's because God is teaching his church something. He's trying to tell his church that when the Spirit of God falls upon the church, you will be my witnesses to the end of the earth. You will be my hands and feet. I could have done it on the road, but I want to do it through Ananias. See, as Christians, we are to be ministers, ministers of the transformative power of Jesus Christ, ones who... (laughs) who are led by the Spirit of God to meet souls and invite them to become Pauls. That's what we've been invited to do. That's why we've been saved by Jesus. So, so that we can partner with the Spirit of God and, and come alongside of people who, who might be Saul in this moment and believe that they could become Pauls, ones that could change empires, ones that could do all of this stuff. And here's Ananias and he senses that God has called him beyond just what he does in his normal life. And now he gets to participate through the simple obedience of the Holy Spirit to lay his hands on someone and see that, part, that person's life transform. And you need to be really careful that you don't think Ananias is some super apostle. His name is never heard about in the rest of human history from this point forward. But God says to him, Paul will be my chosen instrument. I'm going to use him to transform the or roman empire. He's going to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to their kings and rulers. And he's going to take it to all the people of Israel. And Ananias is trying to get his head around us. And Ananias realizes that it's not just Paul who's the chosen instrument here, he's also a chosen instrument. That God has also called him, equipped him, empowered him, and released him, and asked him to go. And he realizes, I get a part to play in the unfolding, dramatic movement of God's gospel in the world. It's not just Paul who's a chosen instrument. I too have been chosen by him to just do one simple thing. Meet one person with the courage of not being killed. Lay my hand on his shoulder. Pray that he receives the Holy Spirit. And watch what God will do. Oh man, note this without Ananias, there would have been no Paul. Without Ananias, there would have been no half of the New Testament. Without Ananias, perhaps the gospel would only have ever gone as far as Samaria. Ananias was willing to lay his hands on someone, not, un- not aware of all that God is about to do through him, to actually change the course of human history, which is what Paul does. And it starts because of somebody who is forgotten in history, but is obedient to the simple call to be a Christian. You need to know that large doors swing on small hinges. And I look around this room right now and I see a lot of small hinges. The potential in this room for what God could do through people who are willing to just lay their hands on someone, pray for them, is unfathomable. Could you imagine what the future of Hong Kong might look like if there are just a few more Ananiases and not Pauls in this place? This idea of being a chosen instrument becomes a fundamental perspective of the early church. Let me read to you just a passage that Peter writes just a few years later to the church. He writes this. He says, but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who belong to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. This is Peter pulling up these very moments from Acts chapter 9 and then applying them to the whole church. He's saying, don't you realize it's not just Paul. We, the whole of us, are a chosen people. We're a holy nation. And guess what? Just like Ananias, we get to see people go out of darkness into incredible light. We get to be the ones who through the simple work of laying hands on people get to see God do amazing things. We are a chosen people. And it's almost like Peter is writing to the church and saying, rise up. Rise up with your God-given authority. You don't need letters from the chief priests. You just need your hands and your hearts. This is the joy of being a Christ follower. I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way. This is the joy of being a Christ follower. We are a chosen instrument of God's good news, equipped with the ability to lay our hands on people, pray for them, and see people move out of darkness into God's great new light. That's who you are. Every single person in this room. A few years ago, uh, me and my friend Dogan went out to pray here in uh, Wan Chai. We wanted to go and pray for street sleepers. Uh, Doggin was an amazing guy, is an amazing guy. He now lives in the US, but um, amazing guy. Uh, American born Chinese. Uh, had a terrible upbringing, really hard life, uh, drugs uh, throughout his uh, teenage life, drug addict into his early 20s, came to a dramatic conversion experience with Jesus Christ, and had heard about Jackie Pollinger's ministry here at the, here in Hong Kong. And so he, he uh, left his work and left his family in California. He moved out here so that he could, in his early 20s, minister with Jackie with the drug addicts of Hong Kong. Um, after that, he came and was a part of the Vine community. And him and his family were a part of this community for many years, uh, and 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 served in many different ways. And on this one particular day, uh, him and I, we went out to Wan Chai and we were looking for street sleepers and we went into Southern Playground, just over here, and we looked up into the stadium part of Southern Playground, we saw this man sitting up there and he very much looked like a, a street sleeper. And Doggan's like, I think that could be the guy. I'm like, yep, let's go. And so we went up there, we sat down. Uh, And Doggan began to speak to him in Cantonese and uh, just began to share, I guess, a little bit about his story and who he was and and shared with this man. And after about five minutes of chatting back and forth in Cantonese, Doggan asked him if he could pray for him. And the man was like, whatever, you know, like if that's what you want to do, you know. So I reached out and put my hand on his left shoulder. Duggan reached out and put his hand on his right shoulder and we started to pray. And Duggan prayed in Cantonese over this guy and I I didn't really know what they were saying. I didn't understand Cantonese at that level, didn't really understand it, but I began to pray just in myself and immediately as I began to pray, I felt the Holy Spirit say this, hey, Andrew, you're wearing a cross. I'm like, yeah. He's like, okay, I want you to take off your cross and give it to this man. And in that moment, I had an Ananias moment. I was like, let's just talk about this for a moment, God, because this man is not even a Christian. Why would I waste this cross on him? Secondly, my wife gave me this cross. I like this cross. This cross has sentimental value to me. It's an important cross. I'm not just gonna randomly take this off and give it to a guy who like five minutes later is gonna throw it in the bin, you know? Like, so I was kind of having that conversation with God whilst I was praying for this man, right? After a few minutes, Dogan turns to me, he's been praying in Cantonese, he turns to me in English and he says, are you sensing anything? I'm like, yeah, unfortunately I am. I said, yeah, I, uh, I, I sense that the Holy Spirit wants me to take off my cross and, and give it to him. As I said those words, Doggan just looked at me and he didn't blink for like ages. And I was worried about him. And he goes, man, I've been praying in Cantonese over this guy for like the last five minutes, but the whole time I've been praying, God has been telling me to give my cross that I'm wearing on my neck to him. But I told God, no, my wife gave it to me. We had exactly the same conversation with God. God. God was probably standing back there going, look at my unfaithful servants. One of you give your cross. <laughs> anyway, so I'm like, I think I better give, give him my cross. And he's like, yeah, yeah, you do that, Andrew. You give me your cross. Uh, I'll keep praying in Cantonese, right? So he, he keeps praying in Cantonese. Uh, and I, I take off my cross and, and, and he's explained to the guy what God was saying and, and the guy unbuttons his shirt. And he's wearing three big fat Buddhist medallion idol type stuff on his, on his neck, right? The big fat ones, right? And, um, and, and he starts to take them off. And as he lifts them up towards about eye level, he suddenly starts manifesting a demon. He starts acting demonically, manifesting literally a demon. Now, I, I had seen this a few times and Dogan had uh, seen this a lot. And here's the fascinating thing. The demon decided to speak in English. I was the only one in that party that didn't speak Cantonese. So the demon wanted me to know how angry and upset he was at this situation. And this demon, I, I will not repeat what, what, what came out of this man's mouth. The man obviously didn't speak any English, but this demon with English began to curse us out like anything I'd never heard. And Dagen started to have a fight with him in English back, but not with the guy, but with the demon. And starts to like shout back and it's like Street Fighter in real life, you know. And then he prays in the name of Jesus, be gone. And this guy just immediately throws his head back and starts crying tears. And I know that these are tears of freedom. And he he takes my cross and he puts it over his neck where those Buddhist symbols had been. And the demon is gone. Not because I'm special or because Dogan's special. I know I'm a pastor, so that story makes you think, okay, well, he's a pastor. That was long before I was a pastor. We're not special. But we were vessels that day. And sitting in this room are vessels of God's glory, waiting to be unleashed. Let me close by showing you one more thing, and then we're going to do this practical exercise. Is everybody okay still? Two more minutes. Verse 17, Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may be able to see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. And he got up and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. He didn't want to die anymore because he had come into resurrection hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. All Ananias did was place his hand on his shoulder. And then he says these two words. What a powerful thing. He says this, brother Saul. Could you imagine what those words would have meant to Paul? Paul who's wrestling with the reality that God's people could never forgive him. Who's wrestling with the reality that God will never forgive him. And that he was killing people of the Messiah. And here a people of the Messiah shows up. And the very first thing he says to Paul is, you're my brother. I love you. You're part of this family. If God's forgiven you, I've forgiven you. And guess what? Not only that, I'm about to lay my hands on you and I'm going to pray that the Spirit of God will come upon you because His grace is sufficient for you. This room is filled with ananiases waiting to be unleashed in your sphere of influence, your workplace, your families, here in Hong Kong in this desperate hour. Would we rise up, lay hands on one another, and pray that the Spirit of God would take people from darkness into light? Now here's how we're going to do that. In a moment, I'm going to invite us all to stand. And then I'm going to pray for the Holy Spirit to come. We're just going to have a time just privately to receive the Holy Spirit. And if you're watching this online right now, our online team are just about to drop in your chat box a link to Zoom where you could go from just watching this one way to actually being in a room with people who are gonna be doing exactly what I'm gonna be talking about here. So just have a look in the chat box right now for the instructions for that Zoom. But what we're doing in this room is you're gonna have a moment where I'm just gonna pray for the Holy Spirit to come and you're gonna receive the Holy Spirit. And then after that, I'm gonna invite you to turn to the person sitting next to you, whether you know them or not, and you're gonna say, hi, so nice to meet you. And then you're gonna ask them, how can I pray for you? And then you're gonna lay your hands on their shoulders and I don't care about COVID. (laughs) You're gonna lay your hands on their shoulder and you're gonna pray for them. And then after that, they're gonna ask you, how can I pray for you? and you're gonna share what's on your heart, and then they're gonna lay their hands on you, and they're gonna pray for you. And I cannot wait to see the potential of what it is that the Holy Spirit is about to do in this room. So I wonder whether you would stand with me, and we're gonna do this together. I wanna pray for us first. If you stand, I just wanna invite you to open your hands. Holy Spirit, thank you. Just open your hands with me right now. We got time to do this, we don't need to rush. Holy Spirit, Would you come? Holy Spirit, we're so grateful. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Father, I'm so grateful for the people of this room and the people that are watching online and going into a Zoom right now. Holy Spirit, come. Father, would you fill us We're tired, weary, been beaten down by the last few years. We need you, Lord. Father, sometimes our eyes are open and we see nothing. Would you remove the scales from our eyes, Lord? Would your Holy Spirit come now?